HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. Meet and three listeners, welcome to 2020. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. And as we approach the end of Season 5 of Meet and 3, I have some big news to share. You won't be hearing from me as much on the upcoming Season 6 because I'm going on maternity leave. In fact, I've been pregnant for the past 38 weeks, which at this point feels like forever— and that's the inspiration for this week's episode. Meet and three. Meet and three. Meet and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and three. Pregnant people are given a lot of advice about what to eat, what not to eat, and how our tastes and bodies will change. There are suddenly so many rules and expectations and a lot of conflicting recommendations that it can be really overwhelming. Add to that your brain being piloted by a tiny alien, plus morning sickness, heartburn, and lots of other surprises, the act of nourishing yourself in pregnancy gets pretty complicated. Coming up, we'll tackle cravings, legends, and the myths and misunderstandings that land certain foods on the forbidden list. In the U.S., the stereotypical craving is pickles and ice cream. In France, it's strawberries and cream, and in China, pregnant people are said to crave shellfish. But no matter where you come from and whether these predictions hold water, pregnancy can do some interesting things to your taste buds. Ruby Walsh explores the strange world of pregnancy cravings in our first story. Pickle ice cream, Cheetos and yogurt, sauerkraut on pizza. These are just a few of the weird food combinations that people claim to find appealing during pregnancy. Supposedly, pregnancy induces all kinds of unexpected cravings. After reading countless articles about this, I wondered, is it all a cultural myth, or does pregnancy really affect the sense of taste? I just found myself feeling like there was an alien piloting my body and brain and uh, totally changed the way that I ate. This week, I spoke with Emily Weinstein and Katie Mosman-Wadler, both eight months pregnant, to hear about how pregnancy has changed their palates. I've been reawakened to the simple joys of just like kid food, not even like saucy pasta, like pasta with butter and Parmesan, which is like God's food. I should mention that Emily is the deputy food editor of the New York Times. Most of the time, she posts recipes for healthy and delicious meals, like grilled fish with salsa verde or fresh chickpea salad. 
But lately, she's also had a hankering for dishes off of the kids' menu. You know, before I had kids, I never would have made just like egg noodles with butter and Parmesan. Like that's something I I do for my daughter all the time. She loves it. And now I make it and I have a few bites. and I'm like, this is awesome. (laughs) Or just like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know, that was not something I ate as part of my normal adult life, you know, in the office on the weekends. And Emily isn't alone. Katie, executive director of Heritage Radio Network, also found herself drawn to comfort food. I went through this period where I realized that like all of the quote unquote real food I was eating was the color yellow. So I ate tons of macaroni and cheese. (laughs) I ate grilled cheese. I ate egg and cheese on a roll and a lot of mango. I didn't consciously choose to eat yellow food. It just, I would think that I was choosing a selection of different foods to eat and I would look at them and they would all be the same color. So what's up with pregnancy cravings? Is there a scientific explanation for these sudden urges? Often, pregnancy cravings are thought of as the body's way of getting the nutrients it needs. But if that was the case, people would be dying to eat spinach salads, not mac and cheese. Pregnancy does cause hormonal changes, which can, in turn, induce cravings. But the truth is, it's complicated. And there isn't one satisfying answer. You feel so weird all the time. And it is really comforting to just, like, down a huge bowl of mac and cheese and feel a little bit better for a minute. So there could just be something to the kind of reverting to our most comforting types of food. Pregnancy can feel like a restrictive time. There is a long list of foods that you supposedly should not eat. Perhaps indulging in cravings helps to make life a little less rigid. The first time you're just like so anxious and it's really easy to go online and find all this information about all the terrible things that might happen to the baby. And so I was really a lot more nervous for at least like the first 20 weeks of my first pregnancy. Like, I don't remember relaxing until like I was way into the second trimester. And then once I relaxed, I really let loose, like in a major way. And I was sort of this office enabler. So in the Times building, there's a Schnippers in the ground floor. I don't know if you know Schnippers, but it's basically like a burger, chicken finger kind of place. And they had these really thick milkshakes. And like people identified me as the person who would like go have a milkshake with them. For me to have a peanut butter chocolate milkshake three times a week is heaven. And I really, really, really went for it. And I didn't worry about it. It would be such a shame if being pregnant didn't include some measure of joy. And I think it's really hard to to feel joy if you're like really stressing about what you eat all the time. I think that's an inhibitor of joy. So I would encourage people to have the milkshake. Thank you to Emily Weinstein and Katie Mosen-Wadler for sharing their stories. We are huge cheese lovers at HRN, but did you know that pregnant people are often advised against eating our favorite moldy snack? Are unpasteurized and raw milk cheeses really so dangerous to a developing baby, or is the cheese ban blown out of proportion? Rowan O'Connell-Gates gets to the bottom of the cheese conundrum in our next story. I was running a cheese shop while I was in graduate school at NYU doing food studies. The cheese shop was on the Upper East Side. It was called Lucy's Way. And I had a lot of pregnant women coming into the shop and asking me, they would look at our case of 100 
or 150 cheeses and say, you know, I'm, I'm pregnant. I need to know which of these is going to be safe for me to eat. That's Jessica Galen, the author of Cheesemongers Over Fearmongers, Toward Data-Driven Cheese Recommendations for Pregnant Women. She wrote and researched the paper for her master's thesis while pursuing a graduate degree in the NYU Food Studies program. I would ask them what their doctor had told them their parameters should be, and they would bring up something about soft cheeses weren't safe or raw cheeses weren't safe, and there didn't seem to be a lot of clarity about what the parameters were. So I started to look around at the advice that was out there from the public health infrastructure in our country, mostly the FDA and the CDC, And I realized pretty quickly that the reason that no one really had a clear explanation of what cheeses they had been told were safe is because the advice itself is pretty ambiguous and doesn't offer a lot of clarity. If you haven't learned the ins and outs of what foods are or aren't recommended during pregnancy, you may be wondering, what's all this fuss about cheese? The fuss and fear stems from Listeria monocytogenes. Listeria is a foodborne pathogen that is found mostly in meat and dairy products, like smoked salmon and cheese. While it remains a rare phenomenon, the bacteria can be dangerous during pregnancy. It can traverse the placenta and it can actually kill an unborn child. So if you're pregnant, your primary concern is encountering Listeria monocytogenes. With this information in mind, one may wonder why anyone would risk consuming cheese while pregnant. Well, according to the Food and Drug Administration, it's okay to eat pasteurized milk or foods that contain pasteurized milk, but it's not okay to eat raw milk cheeses. However, through her research, Galen discovered a number of discrepancies between the realities of encountering listeria and the information provided by government agencies like the FDA. If you ask her, it's not cheese that poses the greatest danger. It's the misinformation surrounding pasteurization. You're not really empowering pregnant women to make decisions based on the data if you're saying don't eat raw milk cheese because you could have avoided every single raw milk cheese and still encountered these pasteurized cheeses that had listeria. A lot of the outbreaks are mapped to pasteurized cheeses or cheeses that were supposed to be pasteurized and weren't effectively pasteurized or cheeses that were pasteurized and were subsequently infected. What I want to convey is there are a lot of safe foods to eat, and we shouldn't be assuming that just because something is raw that it's dangerous. I think that's a message that's been out there, and it's it isn't borne out in the data. There are certain things that are raw that can harbor pathogens, but there are also plenty of things that are pasteurized or otherwise sanitized through our industrial food system that are also dangerous. Galen concluded her research by arriving at a series of suggestions for both herself and other cheese-inclined pregnant women. So I actually was writing my thesis while I was pregnant with my first child, so it was very useful for me. And I learned a lot through it that did change my own actions. So for example, overall, the message is, if it's pasteurized, you're safe. And actually, pasteurized cheese can be a very welcoming platform for listeria to take hold if it is the kind of environment that listeria thrives in, which are 
low acid, low salt, high moisture environments. So I would be much more inclined to eat a raw milk cheese that's hard rather than a soft ripened cheese that is pasteurized. And that is how I conducted myself through both of my pregnancies. And that's what I share with friends when they ask me for advice. We have a long way to go if the real mission here is giving vulnerable populations the information they need to take care of themselves. I don't think that's where most of the recommendations are right now. You can read Jessica Galen's full report at gradfoodstudies.org. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after this short break. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718-362-3539. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Next, Jenny Goodman, host of HRN's Opening Soon, talks with health economist Emily Oster about her book, Expecting Better, why the conventional pregnancy wisdom is wrong and what you really need to know. I'm a mama to two beautiful young girls and married to a chef. I basically eat for fun and as part of my work. So when I found out I was pregnant with my first daughter over four years ago, what I was and wasn't going to eat to nourish this tiny human growing inside me was consuming a lot of my headspace. Everyone from your mom to your OBGYN and midwives to your BFF has an opinion on the matter. But what are those opinions actually based on? Do you really have to give up sushi, charcuterie, and cheese plates for the better part of a year? Luckily, one woman knows the data. During our interview, Emily told me that there are many different reasons that women are told not to eat certain foods while pregnant. The reason you're told not to eat sushi is because of salmonella. Now, salmonella is something that you can get even if you're not pregnant, and it's actually not especially worse if you're pregnant. It's it's the source of a lot of stomach flus. And so that's a place where, like, it's true that, you know, having stomach flu when you're pregnant might be worse than having stomach flu when you're, when you're not pregnant, but it isn't, like, dangerous to the baby. And so I think some of what's hard about these food restrictions is some of them are, like, no, really, specifically because you're pregnant, you shouldn't have this. And then some of them are just like, well, in general, maybe you should be more careful about stuff when you're pregnant, and here are some things that kind of could make you sick. One of the most common restrictions that pregnant women hear about is not drinking coffee. The big concern with coffee is that there's a risk of miscarriage. 
But it's actually quite hard to evaluate whether that's really true. So whether it's really the case that coffee is linked to higher risks of miscarriage for kind of two reasons. So one is that the, the kind of people who drink coffee, um, particularly the fact that they tend to be older, uh, they are at a higher risk for miscarriage just independently because of their age. And so it's hard to separate out the coffee from some of these other factors. The second piece, which is in some ways more nefarious there, is that nausea is actually associated with a lower risk of miscarriage um, on average. But drinking coffee is associated with not being nauseous. So if you're, if you're sort of having a lot of morning sickness, you tend to not want coffee. It's like sort of exacerbates it. And so what you see is that people who don't drink coffee tend to also be nauseous. But of course, that's associated with a lower risk of miscarriage. So kind of separating out the coffee from these other things is, uh, is really challenging. What's helpful is that all of those kind of biases are going to lead you to think that coffee is kind of more bad than it, than it really is. And when we look at limited amounts of coffee, you know, two cups a day, even like three cups a day, there's really kind of no evidence that that has a risk. Where you start seeing some evidence of risks are like people who are having six, seven cups of coffee a day. Again, it's hard to know, is that the coffee? Is that something else about them? But it's also like, that's also like a lot of coffee. Around the world, there's a huge range of opinions about what is and is not suitable food for a pregnant person. It's both that there are places where they're much more lax about these things. So in Japan, you know, my sense is that the sushi restrictions do not crop up. In, in you know, France, uh, some of these cheese restrictions, again, we don't see much of those. And then it's, on the flip side, there are, there are other kinds of food restrictions that come up that we don't have. So, so in China, there's this sort of like very strong prohibition against cold things. So ice, cold foods are sort of thought to be like dangerous in various ways. So everybody's kind of got their own, their own superstitions out there. I had this Chinese colleague when I was pregnant with Penelope. And one time I was having like an ice drink and he was like, what are you doing? Be like horrified. And I was just like, yeah, we don't have that one here. Sorry, that's not one of our many weird restrictions. <laughs> it seems like everyone has their own thoughts on what to avoid eating while pregnant. With so many foods to consider dangerous, the prospect of not being able to enjoy them can seem daunting. In general, I don't think that pregnancy needs to be quite as like restricted as it sometimes is. Um, and so, you know, people get really confused and concerned and, you know, worried about different kinds of fish and it's probably unnecessary. Through all the noise, it is important for people to stay informed so that they can make the best choices for their babies and themselves. To learn more about what Emily discovered in her research on pregnancy, you can read her book, Expecting Better. During pregnancy, your tastes might change and your body definitely will. But is it true that certain foods can induce labor? In our next story, Hannah Forden looks at her own personal history with the unproven phenomenon known as eggplant babies. An article recently was circulating the HRN office about an Italian restaurant in Georgia called Scalini's. They claim that their eggplant parmesan was responsible for 300 women going into labor over the business's 25-year history. That story sounded particularly familiar to me. Eggplant parm plays a starring role in the story of my own birth, but up until very recently, I had no idea that I wasn't alone in that. To get the story, I called up my mom. So do you want the long version? Like, you know how I can drag things out? Or you want the short version? Stories about the night you were born have a sort of mythical quality. It's something I don't remember, but 
after hearing it told so many times over the course of a lifetime, it starts to take on this sort of dreamlike quality that's a mixture of fiction and memory. Now, almost 29 years later, I am living in the Brooklyn neighborhood where I was born. So I asked my mom where she had dinner the night she went into labor. I have absolutely no idea the name of it. And it's funny because... I tried to think of the restaurant, and honestly, I think it must have been the first time I was ever in there. I have somewhat of a visual memory of it, a small place. I remember being dark. Possibly we were the only people in there, so I think it was in Park Slope. We were on our way to, um, to a birthing class. My mom had never heard anything about eggplant parmesan and pregnancy. I had heard spicy food was something that could stimulate contractions. I was not late. You were born two weeks early, so I wasn't trying to do anything to induce labor. I was having dinner before my birthing class, and I really like eggplant parm. So it was more practical. Lynn my mother, was still working as a private chef, even at eight and a half months pregnant. So sitting down for a meal of her own was kind of a novelty. I did try to eat, but on the days that I was working, I didn't. So on that fateful January night, she decided it was time for some eggplant parm. And about six hours later... So I had a a sensation that felt like a pinch. And I'm a very light sleeper, and so that woke me, and all mothers will appreciate this. I went to the bathroom and sat down, and lo and behold, my waters broke on the commode. So that was quite lovely. So that actually happened before I went into labor, which is not typical, but it happens. So how many hours after the eggplant? More or less six. The rest of the story of my birth is long and difficult, but fast forward about 24 hours and I arrived into the world at the now-closed St. Vincent's Hospital in Manhattan. And what effect, if any, did the eggplant have? Do you want the story of you telling me your name that night, too? So... I was at the birthing class, and she would give us little exercises. I don't even remember her name. remember her house, and her leggings always had holes in them. So she gave us an exercise of connecting with the baby inside. Talk to your baby. Listen to your baby. See what your baby has to say to you. So maybe I was really full after the eggplant. Maybe I was having a little indigestion. I don't know. Anyway, I totally got into just being quiet and listening. And so as I was talking to you, you literally somewhere from the ether, uh, you said, my name is Hannah. I was like, hello? It just like flew right into my mind. And then Hannah Pilar. So your name was given to me that, that evening. I don't know where it came from. I hope you like it. I do like it. And I also enjoy how this story that's 
been part of my life as long as I can remember is sliding into the world of dreams and magical dishes and fate. Yes, an eventful evening. Blame it on the eggplant. You can check out Scalini's website to see photos of all the babies who have come into this world thanks, perhaps, to their famous eggplant parm. Just search for Eggplant Babies. Big thanks to Lynn Forden, my mama, for sharing our story. Thanks, Dole. I love you too. Bye. That's our show. Thanks for listening. From everyone here at HRN, we wish you all the best for the new year. Stay tuned next week for an extra crunchy special episode of Meet and Three. Special thanks this week to Kevin Chang Barnum, Rowan O'Connell Gates, and Ruby Walsh. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production this week by Jessica Kreinchich. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.